Well, I'm turning once again back to the scripture we just read, Matthew chapter 14, and we'll be dealing this morning with the subject of the death of John the Baptist. I would imagine this morning that the title, the death of John the Baptist, is not a title that is going to generate a lot of interest. It's not a title that's going to generate a lot of excitement, uh, but it is certainly a very important part of the Scripture, as all of God's Word is, and a very important part of the workings of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And as we consider this subject this morning, I want to draw your attention to that very first verse because it sets the context as to how we arrive at the death of this man who was referred to as the forerunner of our Lord. He came preaching the gospel. He preached the very same message that Jesus preached, repent and believe. But we see really the narrative begins with verse 1, and this is again after what we have witnessed with the many parables that we examined over the last month or so. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard, I want you to make note of that, heard of the fame of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' fame moved an entire country. His fame moved people to wonder, to speculate, to give false suppositions, to wonder who he was, why he came. His fame had been spread abroad. But it was not until this time, is what the Bible says, at this time, the fame of Jesus finally reaches this man by the name of Herod. Uh, This man, of course, Herod, we see throughout Scripture, when you see the name Herod, it is not always the same Herod. There was a number of different men by that name. Of course, this Herod was the son of the Herod we're most familiar with, the son of the Herod who ordered the the killing of all of the children who were two years of age and under in an attempt to try to remove Jesus Christ, the Messiah, from the world. He is a son of that wicked ruler, but this man, of course, carries some of the same characteristics and some of the vileness of his father. Uh, He certainly was a man that we have... Uh, read about and we know about that he was a man who was very self-absorbed. He was a man who was very much into himself to the point that spiritual matters were really not that important to him. And uh, just as a side note, uh, when we become spiritually, uh, or when we become self-absorbed, we certainly are guaranteed that spiritual matters will matter very little. Uh, When we're all about ourselves, we're not going to be so concerned about spiritual matters. So Herod, we see, begins to speak about this fame. That's what verse 2 tells us. And he said unto his servants. Now he's very definitive in Matthew 14. We're going to look at an account, this parallel accounts in Mark and also Luke. But in Matthew's account of this, it's very definitive about what Herod thinks about Jesus. He says, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now what we have to understand about this is this is kind of a a prequel. He's now, Matthew's going to tell us what happened in the verses 3 through 12 for Herod to come to this conclusion that this is John the Baptist risen from the grave. So you have to read the text that way. It's it's the backstory. 
that's getting ready to be told to us. Why would this upset Herod so much? Why would Herod's conscience be pricked to a place that he's concerned about John the Baptist rising from the grave? And we're going to get into why that's remarkable in of itself that this man named Herod would even think about a resurrection. Because according to the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection, and yet he clearly dogmatically says, this is John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. His conscience is pricked. He is being brought to a place of examining his own life and examining his own heart. John the Baptist, of course, was not a stranger. John the Baptist was a famous person. John the Baptist was so famous, he was well-respected, and he was considered by even people who would not be called believers as a prophet. Nobody would dispute that John the Baptist was not a prophet. They would all agree he was a prophet. But notice it is the things that are being done that startle Herod. It says, He's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Herod is a picture of a man who is now being startled by the reality of what spiritual matters really are about. It is not until we are startled in our sin, it is not until we are pricked in our heart, it is not until we're brought to conviction that we have any concern for spiritual matters in our life. Man by nature does not wake up concerned about his spiritual condition. Man does not wake up saying, I wonder if I'm right with God today. There is none that seek after God. There's none righteous. There's no, not one. We've heard the verses over and over again. And yet, do we really believe that it's not until our conscience is startled? That's what's happening with Herod. Herod definitively in Matthew's account cries out that this is John the Baptist. As I mentioned to you, Herod was a Sadducee. They did not even believe in the resurrection. They believed there was no resurrection. That's what they would profess. But do you see what his terror brings him to disavow his own creed? He who said there is no resurrection, when he starts hearing about the mighty works of this man, which is Jesus, he said this must be John the Baptist. Suddenly he's willing to throw out his creed of there is no resurrection to say this is John. Now, Mark and Luke give a different account and a different wording, and we'll kind of refer to that as we go through uh, the message today. But John, at least, at the very least, he believes that there must be some kind of resurrection. Now, I don't want to go too far on another backstory here, but I think it's important to the context. There was a great superstition amongst those, those people, those Sadducees, that there could be a manifestation of a person who was once dead, instead of being resurrected in their old body, that they would be resurrected in the body of another individual. They believed to that point that a soul that was taken could appear in another person's body. That is what makes the sense of how John, how Herod says John is risen from the grave. Either A, he believed in a resurrection now, which he claimed to never believe, or it was this superstitious idea that a man, if he's taken and he dies, he could come forth in the person, in another person. But Herod, we're told, and we'll see this in a little bit in Luke 3, that this Herod had a quarter of his father's kingdom. 
That's what the word tetrarch means. It means to have a fourth, a quarter. But he was also, by definition, a cruel, selfish man. He was a man who could only be defined as a son of a tyrant. Now, the warning in Herod is that Herod had enough in his conscience to scare him. Okay, we all today have enough in our conscience to be scared. All of us today have enough in our conscience to be fearful. But the question is, does Herod have enough in his conscience to not only be feared or to be brought to fear, but to be converted, to be brought to belief? I would say no. All he had was a a fear in his conscience, but it wasn't enough to change him. Notice how he declares that the man who is the risen John has power. Therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now, if you'll hold your place here in Matthew 14, this will be a bit difficult this morning, but we're going to be in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and then Luke 9. So it might be hard for you to hold your place in these spots, but all of these accounts fill in the backstory. Now, notice what Mark declares in Mark 6:14 about these works. He phrases it a little bit differently. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that this is Elias or Elijah. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. So you can see there was a bit of a dispute as to who this Jesus was. His fame, people had, began, had begun to hear about him. Again, we did, they did not live in a social media age where the word would spread two seconds after somebody does something, right? A crime is committed, and within two seconds, it is posted all over the world. The fame would spread about Jesus over time. So Herod is attributing power, power that raises a person from the dead. And I want you to ponder that for a minute. Herod is recognizing that there is a power that is strong enough to raise a person from the dead, even though he's a Sadducee who they did not even believe in a resurrection. What is resurrection? To be raised from the dead. Now if Herod was believing that. That there is a power that is able to raise a person from the dead. How much more should you and I trust in the resurrecting power of our God? That we can say with certainty that we will raise again after our death. But I want you to see, first of all, how we arrived at this. Again, I told you verses 1 and 2 really introduce us now to what has taken place. So it could be said that verses 1 and 2 follow after what happens in verses 3 through 12. But I want you to see, first of all, our first heading this morning is the opinion of Christ by Herod. Verses 1 through 5 tell us what did Herod think about Christ? The most important question that you can be confronted with today is not, are you for sure that if you die today, you go to heaven? It's an important question, but it's not the most important question. The most important question is, what think ye of Christ? What do you think of Christ? What is your opinion of Him? 
How do you view him? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a man? Is he just a good example? Or is he the living God? What think ye of Christ? So let's look, what was Herod's opinion of Christ? Now we've already looked at verses 1 and 2 primarily. And so we know that Herod was a ruler of a quarter of the kingdom. The Jews at the time were under what is now referred to as a Roman government that was formed in a government of four. Now, we're told in Luke 3, you can turn there and look at it if you like, I'm not going to read it, but it tells us the four tetrarchs and who, where they ruled. This Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, okay? And what we're reading about is there had been a day and a time where John the Baptist was put to death by the express command of Herod. In other words, something happened that Herod ordered John the Baptist to be beheaded. Now we're going to learn in our text this morning what the occasion was, what the manner was, and why Herod was brought to that conclusion. We see again, Herod, his opinion was formed by what he heard. He heard about the fame of Jesus. I will tell you, there are millions of people around this globe who have heard about Jesus. They have heard the name. They have heard about him. They heard the fame. Herod had heard about what was going on. Luke says that he heard in more detail all that was done by him. If you look at Luke 9, he also had some specifics about the things that were happening as to why uh, he should have had an opinion that this was actually Christ and not John the Baptist. Luke 9, verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, that's, the, that's Jesus, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. So we're told that Herod, in Luke's account, Herod was fearful enough and had heard about the fame enough that he wanted to see this man for himself. He wanted to see who he was. But notice what he said again in Luke. But Herod says, I beheaded John. I beheaded him. Now, in Mark 6.14, you see we get a little bit more of the story. Yeah, we'll have to flip back and forth to actually see this. Again, the king Herod heard of him. Okay, he heard of him. He hadn't seen it for himself. He had not seen the miracles himself. He had heard it. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to present it in a way that there were some various opinions about who this man was. But Herod seems to be very uh, dogmatic in his conclusion. This is John. Okay, that's, that's what his conclusion is. Now Luke, as we read, gives Herod's report a little bit more doubting. Kind of like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But Matthew and Mark seem to affirm it more than Luke that this is most likely John the Baptist. Now, notice back in our text in Matthew 14 that it is, it is his servants that Herod is very dogmatic too. He says unto his servants, this is who this is. This is John the Baptist. 
Again, as I mentioned to you, there was an opinion even among the Gentiles, even among the heathens, even among unbelievers, that the souls of men and women, when they died, they went into other bodies. Now, you and I, I think, as Christians today, we are, we are saying, well, that's, that is patently false. There's, that's not what happens to a body when it dies. It does not go and take up residence in another body. But people by the droves believe that. They believed that he could appear in another person's body. Now, many believe that that's what Herod's mind was telling him, that he was infected with the idea that this John is risen from the dead, but he has been forced into another body. He's gone into another body for a reason. Now, again, you have to go with me and understand what's happening here. Why would, why would Herod be so concerned about John the Baptist returning? Well, he lifted off John's head from his shoulders. He lifted off John's head from his shoulders because John had preached to him about his sin. And his sin was that he was in an adulterous affair with his brother Philip's wife. John had preached the truth. John was beheaded for preaching the truth. So there's a bit of a convicted conscience. No doubt Herod was concerned if this is John the Baptist raised from the grave, isn't he going to have a matter of revenge to deal with me about? Isn't he going to come back and maybe he's going to have me killed because of what I've done? Or maybe he was just convicted over the message that John had preached to him so clearly. Now we do see in verse number 3, Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison. Now don't miss this. For Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. John the Baptist was in prison by the request of Herodias, his adulterous wife, his brother's wife. Herodias had requested that John the Baptist was to be imprisoned. And that's what happened to John. Now, in Mark 6, verse 20, okay, or verse number, uh, uh, verse number 17 of Mark 6, it says, For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother's wife, for he had married her. For John, here's the reason why John was imprisoned, had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. That was true then, and that's true now, and that will be true for all of eternity. Adultery is adultery. It is not lawful. John is saying, by even the Levitical laws, by the laws of morality, by God's laws, it is never proper. Never was it right for Herod to have his brother's wife. And that's exactly why John was imprisoned. But now notice who originally... After the message was given, therefore, there's that theological connecting word again, Herodias had a quarrel against him. Who did she have a quarrel against? John the Baptist. And would have killed him, but she could not. So here's the story. Herodias was very angry at John the Baptist's message of repent, you adulteress. She said, I would have killed him myself, but I couldn't do it. Why? Because she didn't have the authority to do it. 
So what does that mean? That means she has to go to the man who has the authority to have that man killed. Hence, we see now sin upon sin as now the adulterer and the adulteress now move forth in this wicked plan and wicked scheme to execute John the Baptist for doing nothing more than preaching against sin. There are people all over this world. There are martyrs today, today, no doubt, who lost their head today, literally, for preaching the truth. There have been servants of God who stepped out into glory today who did nothing more than preach the gospel and preached Christ. Some of them, no doubt, with the billion, billions of people on this planet, there's no doubt a man who probably stepped out into eternity today who preached against this very sin. There are there, the vileness and the wickedness of sin that a brother would take his brother's wife. We say, how vile is that? And if you're looking out into society, man has no limits to how wicked he'll be. Man would look at this sin now and say, this is minor by comparison. Man would begin to say, now it's, there's nothing wrong with this. Why is there nothing wrong with this? Because God, and they'll use God, they'll invoke God's name. Because God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be fulfilled. Hmm. It's not the message of the gospel. John is imprisoned. Herodias desires to kill John. And then notice again back in the text in Mark 6, verse 20, for Herod feared John. That's why John's afraid when he hears the fame and he says, this is John the Baptist raised from the grave. But notice what Herod thought about John. I said, what's his opinion of Christ? But look what he thought about John. Knowing that he was a just man and a holy and observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. John considered, or Herod considered John to be a just man. And he gladly heard him. So what we're beginning to see here is we're seeing as John preached the gospel to him, Herod had a good opinion of John. Again, John was very popular. Men counted him to be a prophet. So what had most likely happened is that Herod had called for John because he was a just man, righteous man, called him to the temple court and said, or to the king's court and says, I want to hear from him. Maybe Herod thought he was going to get a message of well, well-being. Maybe he's going to get a message of blessing. And instead, John gets to the king's court and says, Herod, you're an adulterer. And your wife, Herodias, that's your brother's wife. And she's an adulteress. Wasn't quite the goodwill message that maybe he thought he was going to get, even though he recognized him as a just man. But then notice, back in our text in Matthew 14, as the narrative goes on, it says, and when he would have put him to death, okay, so... We go from verse 4 to verse 5. John says unto Herod, it's unlawful, it's not lawful for you to have her. His initial response is, and he would have put him to death right then. But Herod had a problem. He also feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Herod had a real problem on his hand. He didn't like the message of John. 
He didn't like John calling him an adulterer and Herodias an adulteress, but he was afraid of the people because the people respected John the Baptist. And if he put John to death, he might be setting himself up for an insurrection. John the Baptist was that well respected by even people who would not be a believer. And they would say, he's a prophet. Don't kill him. And there was some reverence. And that's what leads us to where we see the downward spiral now. That Herod, of course, is responsible for his own actions. But we see now how Herodias comes into the narrative and now intends to put her own wicked devices into the, pro, into the plan here. Herod's afraid. He's afraid of the esteem that people had of John. He's afraid of losing his quarter of the kingdom too, no doubt. So we see he had an opinion. He had an opinion of the gospel. He had an opinion of Christ's gospel. He responded in rejection of that adulterous accusation that John had made. Verses 6 through 9 tell us about the cause of John the Baptist. What ultimately leads to the cause? We know John wanted to kill, or we know Herod wanted to kill him. We know Herodias had a quarrel against John. But notice it says there was an occasion that allowed all these things to come together. Now, John is already in the prison. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter, you need to make note of that, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, and I want you to notice this, this this struck me so deeply this morning. Being before instructed of her mother. Do you folks see what's happening here? This is a wicked, vile mother instructing her daughter to commit the vilest of sins in order to carry out a vile, unjust killing of a faithful man of God. And where did that child, that daughter, who was of age, learn that? From her mother. There's not much that will strike you and strike a chord in the importance of what a godly parents can actually do for their children. She is acting upon the instruction of her mother. Her mother sends her to dance. And again, we'll talk about that in a moment. This is not not unusual in and of itself. And I'll show you from Scripture here in a minute why. But he promised, Herod promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John the Baptist's head in a charger. Now, Mark 6, verse 21, fills in a little bit more of the details about what was actually asked for and what was promised. Mark 6, verse 21, And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, chief estates of Galilee. Let me stop there. This is common. These kings would throw a birthday feast festival for themselves. It's like throwing yourself a birthday party and instead of inviting people to come, you command them to come. 
He calls and tells all of his high captains, his chief estates, all of his top leaders. So at this birthday party is every part of the leadership that is serving under Herod. There's an emphasis on the word a convenient day. Remember that. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, by the way, you are implicated... You are implicated if you sit in the midst of that kind of sin and you say nothing, do nothing, and you just simply say, I didn't see anything. They all would have understood what the message was. The king said unto the damsel, Herod says unto the damsel, the daughter of Herodias, ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swear unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Now remember, Herod doesn't have a whole kingdom. He has a quarter of a kingdom. So he says, I'll give you half of my quarter. That's just kind of factual there. That tells you exactly what the, that's what the promise was, right? So you see this, ask whatever you want. He swears unto her. It's very important that when a king takes an oath, he can't go back on that oath. I'll give it to you. I'll give you half of my quarter of a kingdom. And by the way, he's seeking and finding this. uh, He's seeing what's happening before him. And Herodias' daughter, by the instruction of her mother, is taking the opportune time to do this during the height of this birthday festival when... Herod would have certainly been intoxicated with wine. He would have been preoccupied with the things that were going on. This is the perfect time for Herodias to send her daughter into the midst and to do something to convince him to carry out Herodias' vile request. Again, I mentioned to you, this is not unusual even for the event of dancing. This was common. I've heard many people say that this daughter did something so out of the ordinary that Herod was taken back and he was just overwhelmed by the fact that there was somebody dancing. This was common. There would be women dancing like this at these festivals. It was a normal thing. Now what we don't fully understand, and we're not going to get into crude speculation, it says that whatever dance this woman was doing, that it pleased him, We can go down the crude route, and if you don't let your mind go there, but let's just say this, whatever happened was convincing enough that she basically, Herodias, through her daughter, had Herod in the palm of her hand. I've heard some really bad preaching that goes really kind of scary about what kind of dance she might have been doing. We're not going to do that. Or what she was wearing. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, here is this man whose conscience has been pricked. He's heard of the fame of Jesus. He's remembered, wait a minute, I imprisoned this man because he preached truth. He's a just man. He's a righteous man. Now he's made an oath. A king could not go back on his oath. He would lose his credibility if he went back on his oath. So this dancing was common. Very common amongst pagan festivals, there's no doubt. All we can surmise from the Scriptures is that Herodias' daughter pleased Herod in a more pleasing way than was probably normal. So don't get the idea that this was not for the purpose of pleasing the king. It always was about pleasing the king. This just seemed to please him more than normal. 
So notice what happens. He makes the promise in verse 7. And she, verse 8 of Matthew 14, being before instructed of her mother, said, give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. Again, Mark reports it a little bit differently. Verse 24 of Mark 6, it says, And she went forth and said unto her mother, or ask her mother, What shall I ask? That means there was time to think about this. Herodias' daughter goes to her mother and says, Mom, what should I ask him for? He said, Whatever you ask for, I'll give you half the kingdom. Half of my quarter. Herodias doesn't say, Well, that's a good one. Get half the, half the kingdom. No, she says, Tell him that I want head, I want, you want the head of John the Baptist. That's what you want. You want someone's head. She could have had half the kingdom, half the quarter, but nonetheless. Do you see how vile mankind will be? That they would choose to behead a man when given the choice, ask me anything you want, and she says, I want the head of John. The head of John the Baptist, and notice verse, uh, verse 25 of Matthew, or Mark, Mark 6 says, and she came in straightway with haste. Quickly comes into the king and asks, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. She goes right back from her mother, goes right into the king and said, this is what I want. I want to stop for a minute and give you really three things that I thought about today application-wise. I know sometimes wait till the end to get an application, but they are so clear here. First of all, I think we need to see just how powerful and wicked and vile the lust of malice and the desire for revenge is. I don't think we understand how strong malice aforethought can be in the human mind and in the human heart. You know, it's one, of the, it's one of the steps in determining how guilty somebody is in the killing or the taking of a life of another person. I'm not an attorney, never will be an attorney, but it's malice of forethought. You thought about this ahead of time. You planned it ahead of time. You, you, you devised a scheme to make sure that this plan was foolproof so that when you got to take that person's life, it was premeditated and planned. That's the lust of malice. And it's also the desire of revenge. Now I'm telling you, as, as even believers here today, you better guard yourself against even revenge. Because I'm telling you, when somebody does you wrong and you think, oh, I'm too Christ-like to ever give myself over to revenge, you're fooling yourself. If somebody wrongs you badly enough, you and I are capable of the most vile of sins. I mean, let's put this right where it is. There's a case of adultery happening right here. A man's wife is taken by another man. That man may not have malice aforethought in his mind, but he responds in anger. He responds in revenge. What does he want to do? He wants to make sure that man pays for the sin he committed against him. Folks, we're not above seeking revenge, and yet we're not supposed to seek revenge. God is the avenger. We're not told to carry out and wield the sword. 
And yet, there is this warning against that. That's just as important as the second one. The evil and the influence of wicked parents. Folks, what you are seeing in our country today is the influence of a generation of ungodly, wicked parents, and you are seeing the fruit of it. You're seeing it every single day. You're seeing it on the news. You're seeing it on the internet. You are seeing children who are doing the unthinkable. You are seeing children, elementary age, and I'm not going to get any more details than this, doing unthinkable things to other elementary students. And we sit and we say, where did that come from? Some of it comes directly from parents who are ungodly and wicked themselves, just simply not caring. Some of it comes from what you're putting before them. We have parents that are exposing their kids to things that are the most ungodly, vile thing that we can say, and we say, this is, un- this is, un- this is not harmful. This is just a cartoon. This is just this. And my kid has to be involved in what everybody else is doing. Listen, you are putting evil things in front of them. You are going to produce a wicked child. And then you're going to blame everybody but you. You're going to say, where did they learn that? And 90 times out of 10, they learn it from their own home environment. I've said it a hundred times. Your greatest mission field parent is your children. I know parents that want to go to a mission field 5,000 miles away, but they will not minister to their own children. God is not honored just because you pick up and move 5,000 miles away and then you neglect your children's spiritual condition. My greatest concern is for my children. You say, you can't be a pastor and be more concerned about your children than us. I am. My children aren't children anymore. And I'm still concerned about them. And I will be concerned about them until the day God draws my last breath. Why? Why? Because the influence of a parent doesn't end when they turn 18. And if I'm going on a rabbit trail, sorry, I'm going to stay here for a minute. This idea that says, well, they're 18, they don't need my influence anymore. Oh, yes, they do. They need your influence, and I'm telling you, it is, it is the downfall of this society. It has started in the home. It's the breakdown of the home. That's why we, that's why we preach against same-sex marriage. We preach against these things that are anti-family because it is destroying the fabric. I saw this morning something I never thought I'd see. I saw a Christian celebrating a gay marriage on Facebook this morning. And I said, dear God, help us. This is a Christian woman who's saying, oh, so much love. What? What? How how did this happen? To where now Christians are celebrating what God calls an abomination. You can't blame everything on parents. I realize that. But society is degrading and degrading and degrading. And if you do not as parents and grandparents and grandparents, I think you might have as good of an opportunity as anybody to influence your grandchildren. 
You have an opportunity to teach them godly truth. And not just by what you say. Your kids will see right through you. You tell them what they should do and then you do exactly the opposite thing. They are not stupid. They see it. That's just what mom says. That's just what dad says. This daughter of Herodias, she immediately took the instruction from her mother, went right in there and said, I'll tell you what what we want. We want John the Baptist's head. And we say, boy, that's vile. That's wicked. Yeah, it's vile and wicked too to try try to call same-sex marriage as God-blessed. And then to have the audacity to pray over it. God bless this abomination. How can we bless an abomination? God can't, God will not do that. And he's never going to change his mind. Oh, no, no, no. God is, God is with it. He's moving with the culture. Not my God. My God has not moved all the way from the holiness and the righteousness that He tried to teach the Old Testament people to see God's righteousness and holiness when even the people of Israel would not even say the name of God out of fear of who God was. And therein lies our problem. Where's the fear of God gone? Listen, you want the fear of God put in you, have children. I'm telling you. Because there's no greater responsibility you're ever going to have than having kids. And you're responsible for them. And you're responsible to make sure your kids are not put in environments that are going to be detrimental to their spiritual condition. That may mean you have to take a stand in society if the world says, you are an absolute crazy person. Then call me crazy. But I am not going to let the system have my child. I'm not going to let you have my grandkids. And if that means i got to pull you out of society and you've got to be a social leper to protect you, then I'm going to do it. Where are Christians at taking that kind of a stand? No, we just don't want to disrupt the culture. We're supposed to preach the Gospel. We're supposed to preach the counsel. The influence of parents, godly parents by their admonitions, should not be teaching their children to sin. But they should be teaching their children and pointing their children to become instruments of righteousness. And then thirdly, the indifference. Remember I told you there were people sitting there. Nobody in this story attempted to stop the execution of John the Baptist. None of them. All those people that were invited to the birthday party, none of them said, wait a minute, king. We can't do this. You know why? Because they would have lost their head. Doesn't that speak about our compromise in our society? We don't say anything because we're afraid of the consequences towards us. We don't call sin, sin anymore because we we don't want to lose whatever we have. We love the world so much, we don't want to lose any part of it. We want to have the world in one hand, we want to have God in the other, and we want these things to coexist. We want to say, look, I want to have the not-so-bad of the world, and that's how we define it, the not-so-bad, the stuff that's eh, not as bad as it could be, and then we want the God stuff. Listen, sin is sin. This church, unless they throw me out, is always going to take a stand against gay marriage. We're always going to take a stand against transgenderism. And we're always going to take a stand against abortion. That might make you mad. That might make you very unhappy. 
That stand is not going away. Why? Because that's my philosophy? No, that's what the Bible teaches. Not changing. That's because we can't. We can change things that don't matter. We can't change on what God says. John the Baptist called adultery adultery. Guess what we're calling it? Adultery is adultery. I'm not going to sit and tell you that it's not. But this indifference, Mark 6, and again, indifference is marking not just the world, it's marking our Christians, it's marking our churches. Look what it says in Mark 6, 26. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake, so he has one problem, I can't go back on my oath, and this is alarming, but I shouldn't be surprised. And for their sakes, who is the there? Those who sat with them. He would not reject her. He's afraid of losing his kingdom. Nobody said anything. He said, I'm also not going to do this because of the people that are seated with me. I'm not going to reject her request. Verses 10 through 12, we see the manner of John the Baptist's death. Verse 9, the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with them at meat, he commanded it to be given her, and he sent. And he sent. Herod gives the order and beheads, beheads John in the prison. Now let me just share this with you, and I think it's important. Beheading, much like death on the cross, was reserved for the worst of criminals. You did not behead a person unless they were determined to be the worst of the worst of society. You hang the worst of society on a cross, Romans. You, you behead, especially if you're talking about that which is worthy of a beheading. What has John done? John's done nothing worthy of being the worst of criminals. Jesus Christ goes to the cross because the people, when given the choice between Barabbas, who was a criminal of the sort that should have died on a cross, would have certainly fit the bill for a beheading. Jesus doesn't. It is, it is the epitome of the wickedness that the mother would ask for the most vicious way of bringing death to a person for crimes, of course, that John did not commit. And all we're told is he was beheaded and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. Okay, notice this, the vileness of this. John's head comes out on a plate. I don't mean to be graphic today. It comes out on a plate. It's handed to the daughter. Nobody's sickened by this. Nobody's sickened. And she says, Mom, here it is. It's how we abort babies in this country. There's no concern. There's no thought. It is like going to a restaurant at this point. It, it literally... It's just, it can be so easy. There's no thought about the life. 
Nobody's thinking about John the Baptist, just that Herodias got her wish and her wicked plan brought upon the death, which we understand the sovereignty of God. We understand that God is in all of this, but I also think it's very teachable to see this is just how wicked and vile man can be. And we look at things like this and we say, boy, that is vile. And yet Christians and churches look all over our country and they say, eh, I don't see anything that vile. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? We don't see the darkness? We don't see that it's getting darker? Now again, with the darkness comes the more glory of the reminder of the light of Christ and the light that Christ is coming again. But we have never been called to hole up in some compound somewhere and wait till Jesus comes. So many churches and pulpits have gone quiet. They've gone silent. They're afraid of running people out because they're afraid their programs are going to crash. They're afraid that their church is not going to be it and hip and with it. Nobody here wants that. We want a place where the truth is going forth as it is. That means I got to be confronted with my own sin. I have to be confronted with conviction when the Spirit convicts me of how wicked I can be and how my thoughts can be vile and how I can justify even putting some wicked things before my eyes and say, you know what? This isn't that bad. I've done it. Does that shock you? Wait a minute. The pastor's not supposed to do that. No, and either are you. But I put it and I think, it's not so bad. Culture's accepting it. Church down the road's using it as a sermon illustration. Imagine that. Churches bring in a video screen and then give you an illustration from something wicked and vile to try to demonstrate and illustrate to you what God's Word says. Even the basic examination of that says that makes no sense. I'm going to use something wicked to prove God's goodness? No. See, the reality is, is this execution, no matter how sorry Herod was, no matter what he had promised, he was not willing to go back on his oath and he was not willing to stand up and go against even if he felt like he shouldn't have done it. Many today want to claim, I am just ignorant of what's going on. Your ignorance today is willful and it's sinful. Not trying to be cute rhyming there, it's willful. There's no excuse for us to be ignorant today about what's going on in the world. Again, back to parents. You have kids going to school. Parents have no idea what your children are being taught. You should be really concerned. You should be really concerned what your preschool is being taught. You should be really concerned about it. That doesn't happen in the classroom, does it? Yes, it does. Being exceedingly sorry is not enough to convert a person. But yet, Herod's vile gratification was to please Herodias, his adulterous wife, and sadly, her wicked daughter. We hear people screaming about 
justice. We have people screaming about inhumane things. What could be more unjust, more unhuman, and more bloody than John being beheaded without a trial, no condemnation? He was beheaded at a festival. You think... You think there may not come a time when the killing of Christians becomes part of a celebration? It's happening in other countries in the world. Where? Look it up. Christians being used as means of celebration, their death is being celebrated for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel. Again, while we sit in our comfortable pew, we often don't think about these things. John didn't get a trial that was fair. Our Lord didn't get a trial, of course, that was fair. But it appears that Herodias and her husband and her daughter and the guest, you would think John's head on that charger would have done something to maybe remove the malice, the lust, Even seeing that didn't change them. Folks, today, you could have heard about the fame of Jesus. You could be sitting in a church today and you say, I know who Jesus is. I have heard about him. That may not be enough to change you. Conversion will change you. Conversion will turn out a different person, a new nature, a person who has a desire to live for the Lord and actually is growing more and more like Christ, not more and more comfortable with the world. And then we sadly just see, which leads us into next week. I appreciate your patience. I've gone longer than I wanted to this morning. But his disciples came and took up the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. The disciples of John, this might seem simple. It may seem like, boy, they didn't do much to honor his memory. That was the most respectful thing they could do. I want you to think about that. There was no pomp. There was no circumstance. You know what? It's also an acknowledgement. The very first words that John said when he came forth, when they kept saying, you're Jesus, he said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. I am not even worthy to tie his shoes. This is not just a statement to connect us. This This was the most respectful thing because John said, he must increase. I don't want a celebratory funeral. And by the way, John the Baptist by that time was already rejoicing. He was already rejoicing. But his disciples, the disciples of came and took and they tell Jesus. They explain to Jesus what had happened. They take up John's body. They bury it. And the next thing we see, they're talking with Jesus and then Jesus is now teaching them how to have compassion on a multitude of people. These thoughts are not just randomly placed there. It's an amazing thing. We go through something that could make us so angry and so intent, and then Jesus, the disciples say, just send them away, and Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. John the Baptist is an example of courage to preach no matter what happens. Every faithful minister of God If he's not willing to preach with invincible courage, shouldn't preach at all. 
I fully understand what I just said. In Herod, you have an example of a tyrant driven by his own vanity, driven by his own pride, driven by cruelty. One whose conscience was pricked, but never brought to conviction of salvation. Herodias and her daughter. I love the way that one commentator put it, and I can't say it any other way. In Herodias and her daughter, we have an example of a vile wantonness and a woman-like cruelty. That'll make you think. The death of John the Baptist, a pivotal event, of course, in the Lord's work, but one I hope will challenge us today to think about a lot of things we've dealt with this morning. Let's conclude today by singing the hymn 442.